Welcome to Superstructure, Money on the Left Universe. This is Natty, and we have some special guests with us today. We have, well, Scott, Scott, the the aunt in chief of uh, the Money on the Left Universe, uh, Scott Hello. Ferguson. And then we have Erica Robles Anderson, who Hello. is professor at NYU. Uh, you you wear some different hats. What are some of the hats that you wear? How do we know you, Erica? What's your what's your connection to all of us? Uh, so let's see. Uh, I guess I'm yeah. I'm technically a professor at NYU. I'm in <laughs> I'm in a department media, culture, and communication. So we leave like nothing off the table. Um, and so we have some overlap in that sense. I'm also affiliated in religious studies there. So very excited to talk about all things metaphysics. Um, and we know each other from the internet, right? Yeah. That's, that's, I think, fake, right, Scott? No, that's it's that, fake. You have yeah. a book that says abstract art behind you. So I think we, we know from the beginning that's that true. none of this that's is, true. is real. <laughs> Erica pretends to be a professor, but she's just Erica from Twitter. It's true. I'm a fistful of scholars, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Right, sure. But you got that in, you got that handle in like 2000, what? I mean, I don't like to talk about elementary Oh, okay. No. (laughs) Neither should I, to be honest. What's video trough? What does that mean, actually, by the way, Scott? It just means video eater. Oh, Oh, is, is trough eater? Yeah. Well, anyway, we really wanted to come together to talk today because we had been thinking about different issues with social reproduction and economics and these different intersections, rather, yeah, it'd be this metaphysical superstructures as law, as provisioning, as the way all these things interconnect and kind of thinking together and different discourses we've had. We were thinking about um, Melinda Cooper, right? This writer who has had some major books come out in recent years. And then, and then kind of like the moment catches up to us, right? Like Roe v. Wade is like getting leaked that it might be overturned. You know, we see Jamal Bowie is then bringing up this book right now. Like what, what kind of dialogue are we looking to have? Why are we interested in this topic and these intersections of all different things? I don't know. What, how can we unpack like what's going on a little bit with this moment? So should we talk about, I'm just thinking like we should back up. Right. So like we were, we've been talking for weeks, a month, I don't know. Before I was born. Exactly. (laughs) Time immemorial. um, We've been talking about family values and Melinda Cooper's work, but also just what's going on with household medium femme stuff. Like this thing that never seems like you're, it's not like the market or the state and we call it social reproduction, but somehow it never gets the main floor And yet it seems like most of what people do is people, you know? So um, we've been looking for some ways into this topic for a while and this seemed like the right space. I think at least a year. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then recently, I think we all converged around Cooper's book, right? Because I think- Yeah, because Scott, you were reading it and I was was reading it. Like I had listened to interview, you know, but I hadn't, I hadn't really like read it because it's good, dense material. You have to like focus, once you get focused into it, you can kind of get on a roll. Same with like the asset economy, that one just flies by, you know, 
but, um, but it's like it. it's a certain mode huh mm-hmm. i don't know if you've seen it but it's like so I, I have the hardback i bought it when it first came out because it's like so pretty really pretty what is that photo of what is that that blue with the, the light on the photo where is that Do we so know? i, I asked, that's a weird I asked question Linda but, Cooper. Uh, <laughs> what'd she and say she was like it's like a random photo of some house in like norway or something <laughs> oh, the Nordic weird. model. Yeah, Nordic model. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a zone book. Yeah, it's a they zone do. Book. They do pretty books. Yeah, I don't know zone book. That's. It's a thing. And so, yeah. But anyway, while we kind of are coming in from this right, this functional finance MMT point of view, right, and this sort of yeah, this medium femme superstructurality of like, what is media? What is religion? What is uh money right and all the and i think scott and erica both of your work is is digging around in a lot of those areas and kind of parallel different areas i mean but everybody tends to get siloed off right yeah i think there's two stories here maybe to flag right is one is how how did our projects start to find one another and um uh that's one and then the other one is just more recently how did we start talking right. about Melinda this Cooper's book and why and how how the world keeps shifting and the book keeps shining this incredibly bright light on it that doesn't in, in ways that we feel like um, its lessons have not yet been learned. But maybe this is an opportunity for Erica to, to talk about her work with the Oikos group. Yeah, so let me back up. Supply of babies. (laughs) So it's true. So maybe like I, in fact, okay, so about 2015, like so far enough away from the global financial crisis, et cetera, I think I was like pregnant with baby two. I don't know. It's a blur. But um, I was socially reproducing and (laughs) at a party, I think it was like a, maybe it was like a, like an engagement party or like congratulations on your baby party or something, you know, one of these things that's happening at a bar. And I converged with like two other scholars, uh, one who's a linguistic anthropologist who just finished a book on uh, art school in China named Lily Chumley, and another who's an economic anthropologist named Caitlin Zaloom, whose first book was on um, financial worlds transforming from the pit to like the computer terminal. Um, and all three of us were in this bar as one is right. Like, like having whiskey or whatever, and like stuck with the same problems with very different like structures for why. You That's know, the old it. joke, right? Like three, yeah. three scholars in a, in a, in a bar, in a bar. <laughs> right, yeah. right. <laughs> they walk in, they walk in. I'm like, a, I'm like a cultural historian. So they know stuff that I don't know, et cetera. So we're like describing like, this is so annoying. We can't figure out how to do this. And uh, Caitlin's alluded, you know, to her credit goes, wait, so are we talking about the Oikos then? And we were like, let's just do this. Let's um, put together a working group that would be open public um, at the Institute for Public Knowledge at NYU that would bring together people thinking about how to talk about what we might call the distinction between economy and society and trying to find some other lenses for kinship and to talk about it. So. Cooper's work was on our radar. A lot of stuff is, but we're really looking for some non-liberal models and analytics. So we don't keep getting stuck in the same like loop of like noticing that like society is important, but then like, oh, actually we're not going to think about it that centrally. We're like, let's just take this on and sit still, you know, and, and spend some years thinking and reading together about this. 
So what does this term oikos teach us a little bit? Where does it come oh. from? What does it mean? Why why do you like it? I just do. Um, so um, it's not the yogurt, um, though that's that great. Good, Scott. <laughs> good yogurt. They have good benefits, I hear. Is um, that a, that's a yogurt, really? I didn't know. Mm-hmm. It's culture. Yeah, you know, it's culture. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yogurt jokes. We are all yogurt. That's... <laughs> <We're> all... <laughs> Um, so I'm probably butchering the word so I'll just pardon the Greek speakers out there but um, the root of economy is this word oikonomia which meant both ecology and economy at once and this is the basic political unit for like in antiquity for the city-state it's kind of the estate the social relations all things entailed in that so we're talking like way before any idea of the distinction between a like a private and a public which we're gonna we've been hearing a lot about right like where are we allowed to protest Kavanaugh not as private residents right this makes no sense and like the polis the city-state and the domestic sphere are completely entailed in some way together. And so we thought, well, this is a really nice way to talk about what's at stake with domestic political economies, that there are such things and that we should be looking internal to household spaces as part of what's happening with the state and the market. And that's a totally legitimate thing to do. So what you're saying is that Roe v. Wade is just, that's just only about the stock market, correct? <laughs> no, sorry. I'm just, <laughs> no, it's inflation. Well, so t- well, it's yeah. interesting because you're, you're bringing together these insights I think people have repressed about all these different interconnections and these categories that we've kind of taken in that, that obscure our ability to see situations clearly. And then people sort of have these impulses, right, to say, like, to do these reductive things where they're like, oh, well... If Roe v. Wade is overturned, that's just, again, only a class issue. Like, all that is is your bank account, which is an important factor because, of course, it is because all of these things are all tied up in each other. But I'm just thinking about the way, like, we're interested in these visions because they help us see the moments better. And and that that's what's interesting about Cooper's history is the way, you know, she takes fiscal politics seriously. She takes... um, cultural welfare politics seriously and and the the structuring of the economy and just there's not all this like aggressive siloing off in ways that make it harder for us to to see if that makes sense yeah i think one thing we you know this kind of like a tragic cul-de-sac we get into if we think too much about economy and society is too different it's kind of like the classic model undergirding a lot of the social sciences, even though we don't talk about it much, like that's really a lot of what's going on, I, I'll, I would argue. Um, so you get into these troubles, right? So it's like you start noticing, for example, that uh, work in the home is pretty gendered. We'll be like, oh, well, like women do two shifts, right? Something like this. And so you'll end up with a kind of well-meaning uh, way of redressing that problem that's like, well, that's just wages, housework, right? And let's pay people for doing that. And that seems fine on the one hand, I get it, except that it ignores that a tremendous amount of what's going on with households has like nothing to do with wages. They were both never prior to the economy. They're never outside of the economy. And so there's all these forms of economic activity that have to do with assets and remittances and like wealth construction and financialization that never were going to go through wages or salaries at all. And so you want to have some kind of language for like inheritance, debt, et cetera, that has to do with reproduction centrally. And you're just never going to get there if the model is like 
work or the factory to describe the range of possibilities in the estate. Yeah, it's not I- taking seriously in a way legal complexity and design enough, right? As far as, yeah, go ahead, Scott. It's not, it's not really seeing all the infrastructure, which maybe is like where there's kind of a, a, a crossover for us. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, and I think the way that I came to a lot of this through an MMT lens um, was that I, I was seeing more and more that the kind of Marxism that I had studied and internalized made these kinds of um, brute distinctions between the point of production and on, over here and finance over there and um, and the family as an institution still over there and of course they all kind of interact or they disrupt one another or you know um but they they're not fully all at once the same thing (laughs) right and i think i think it was me everything is cake everything is cake (laughs) it's cake all the way down um thank you adorno no (laughs) (laughs) um and and so I started to think about, as a media studies scholar, I started to think about media and mediation in new, I think, more capacious ways um, that I think before, you know, I think I, I had already had these impulses, but MMT for me became a way to uh, kind of <laughs> raise the artificial ceiling that I had um, imposed on on much of my thinking. And then I think once... Once I saw past that, I was able to just keep thinking and keep taking on new questions and problems. And I don't think I've ever stopped. And this is um, what what did that roof kind of look like? Like, what was the what do you think? I'm serious, though. Like, what was kind of the block? Like, what was the the limit there? Well, that, I, that you didn't that you couldn't the tools you didn't have. I don't know. It's not just one. I can't just put it in one way. But, you know, I think. um, In in no dominant model uh, is, you know, the fisc, right? The the the, the fiscal um, uh, apparatus of Catholic of governance. <laughs> um, is it taken seriously as a uh, as foundational mediation, and uh, and so I think for at least in one way I saw. By, by placing that in a capacious, non-reductive sense at the center of uh, at the center of monetary mediation and at the center of so much social cultural mediation, I was able to see, I guess I was able to see the all at onceness and the interconnectedness a lot more than I was able to before, which was a different, you know, a different path, I think, than the Oikos path. But I think we ended up kind of I think we've we've kind of taken these different journeys up a mountain and 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 kind of seen each other on the other side, so to speak. It seems like you both have an interest in like I like Scott. You have like the cinema thing, but then also like the like early psychoanalysis thing. And then Eric, I feel like you have like the the big lights, media, ch- church, cinema thing, as well as like an interest in the the psychology and the economics. Because I know you and Scott wrote about like you know. 
the Eleanor Gibson baby on the fiscal cliff and stuff. And this, anyway, I'm going on like a hundred all and at once can directions. To- yeah, but <laughs> yeah, we can go get back think- to that later. But yeah, go yeah, but, but I'm just thinking about your intersections. Yeah, no, and I think there's and something think, yeah, visual and economic and mm-hmm. yeah, and I think with you as well, right? Like, I mean, I think yeah. you and I really immediately were able to talk about yeah. religion and like metaphysics. Yeah. And, like, yeah, what did we talk about right? in the beginning? Um, it's hard for me to even theory. trace. It's like I put it out, huh? Social oh, theory, like yeah, you know, yeah, like colors. You know, it, it's sort of yeah, felt yeah, like it had uh-huh. some range, you know, people of- theory, but like. Mm-hmm it's like this people theory is in the economic, you know what I mean? Like not, I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could talk, we could go deep on like, you know, reality TV and like why that's full of families, you know, why those structures work as kind of media engines and industries. So I think the range, you know, the, the range of like, cause I think I came. Yeah. Because all of your projects for me is like a similar thing where like what it opens up in me is like my own blocks where, you know, you kind of have things you're interested in and and then you do kind of like hit thinking blocks. Do you know what I mean? Like you might like get stuck for three years because Deleuze like confused you. Do you know what I mean? And you're just like, ah, everything is nothing. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And just even if you're just doing your thing, like you, it's, um, it is really interesting to meet people where you kind of are like bouncing off all different areas you're into as far as thinking and ideas that doesn't have to have all these rigid categories. Cause I'm also, you know, just someone on the internet kind of freelancing and then I meet people and then I'm podcasting. So I'm like, not like a, in the Academy scholar too. And so it's fun, but I'm also like, you know, doing language tutoring and, you know, this, like this mixing of worlds is just, I don't know. It's interesting it's a way of socializing and doing politics in a way, like thinking about um, what we're all thinking about and what's confusing and what's missing. And then how like putting these pieces together, like creates new um, possibilities. Yeah. I was thinking like, we need like a, it's like, you need a spreadsheet, like an Excel document for like form shifts, like for transvaluing, like a ledger of transvaluations and, and translations, you know, where it's like that in and of itself is a yeah. kind of work that is required to make it all hang yeah. together. And mm-hmm. I think maybe that's another thing we, we talked about really early, right? Was like thinking about multiple languages at once mm-hmm. really puts this kind of um, very clear structure in place to make the effort right to learn one another's languages and take take time to do that and then figure out what we need to build from it in order to keep pushing some project further ahead you know yeah and I think that we really respect like that we respect the depth of like thinking as serious like you know like we talked for like five hours like about reading do you know what I mean just like what is reading what is a medium what is Fem, what is reading and it's just like that you could do that a hundred times too and it's like that's going through so many and this thing of the ledger too is like this oikos and this mmt intersection because it's this question we're always talking about of like how to account for everybody right like this and that's storytelling accounting that's also this accounting of the finance of everything and then that's labor as well like who is building the little spreadsheet who's filling it out and who you know all these and then all these things that we're missing as far as how to see is like it's you're able to account in a better way and i think one of the ways we 
we do this is um, reading specific kinds of texts, whether it's, you know, so-called cultural texts or aesthetic works or churches or works of scholarship, right? Like Melinda Cooper's book. And I think um, Eric and I were, we started to talk about it a couple months ago, I think afresh because um, we were discussing, I think we're both, I think we both fancy ourselves historians of what gets called the neoliberal period, whether that's, you know, an appropriate word is a discussion maybe for another day. Um, Neoliberalism is over. Yes. <laughs> so Done. over. This guy, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and there's different narratives that are told about a neoliberalization or, you know, where does it come from? You know, and, and we have, we have a variety of now kind of just so stories and can canonical um, accounts of what, what neoliberalization, neoliberalization is, what it has meant, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I think we've, we rely on these stories, but we're also suspicious of, I think a lot of them because they, they rely, they rely on these, dubious uh, distinctions between market and the non-commodified uh, between, you know, family and workplace um, that are deeply gendered and raced in, in these kinds of ways. And so I think we, we've just been feeling around for and, and revisiting texts um, that, that are trying to, to, give us some kind of like critical leverage for an other, another way of accounting for this period. And that's how we came, came to this, I think, in this last First round, at least. So part of our, our Australia turn, because she works in, in Sydney. That's right. So that's yes. part of the French Australia. No. <laughs> <laughs> MMT, though, does have like such a... Oh, yeah, totally. Like Australia. And then I guess you have Bill Mitchell. Anyway, that's all. Mm -hmm, but... Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Everything's but there's anyway the sense of is neoliberalism kind of ending in a way that makes people kind of go back to the 70s along with this sense like oh inflation's happening again oh oh is like is biden is biden carter oh is uh there's this sort of callback to that moment in time and the sense of like what era are we in and then so i think Co uh, cooper is tracing you know in family values sort of this moment of neolib and neocon reaction right to sort of a welfare rights movement different kinds of movements that had occurred and then it might be worth yeah. just trying to yeah reconstruct her argument and its stakes and maybe you know and i also just wanted to like flag the roe v wade thing it's like it doesn't fit perfectly but there's all these people in there right the questions of the 70s and privacy and posner and yeah, all yeah. this stuff is kind of in there. The mm -hmm. one thing that I think maybe just to kind of pull the thread from the weirdness of this conversation we had where things all seemed connected into the structure of Cooper's argument is um, so like I did my dissertation work on the rise of megachurches, which is very much like a conservative, what we would think of as a conservative project and deep in the moment of 
a broad narrative about secularity and how it was the church was in decline and it was an inevitable thing as technology ramps up and we become an information society that it was going to go away, right? Whether or not you wanted it to or not was irrelevant. And yet we know that the legacy of that moment was this massive proliferation of this totally new form of Protestantism that looks like cathedrals. And these churches are like huge. So a mega church is like at least 3000 people, but some of these are like six figures of size and congregation and they're all over the world, right? So something happened to the material culture of like collectivity that was really profound in exactly this period where we're supposed to become atomized individual and secular, you know, that the market was supposed to be eating all of the stuff up. And Scott and I went back and forth a lot about this. And I don't want to sort of, you know, it'd be good to say a little bit maybe about the like neoliberal blockbuster, right? That we were watching these mass, these massive forms of convening, right? In this period where that's not supposed to be allowed anymore. And I think that kind of consistent tip off of cultural forms that belie the conversation that has become accepted as an atomization story was like one of the first tip offs that we had. And it's part of what I think made Cooper's work so interesting is that she's building on a tradition that brings her into this moment as well, where you have a whole set of actors that are supposed to be our chief like priests of the market who are in fact narrating a a kind of focus on the family as this inalienable, important social form that they think naturally is going to like allow for some, some kinds of market growth, but it doesn't go away. Like collectivity is all over the place and it's just screaming to be taken seriously. And that's not a neoliberal story. Or if it is, it means neoliberalism is way stranger and more capacious than we have imagined it to be. Um, I don't know, Scott, if that resonates with your sensibility for how we got into the Cooper the nuts of Cooper's argument. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think now's a good time to just kind of walk through some of the, I mean, I actually sometimes have a hard time holding it all in my brain at the same time. I mean, she's making it's pretty intricate. Yeah. Her, yeah. Yeah. Her, I mean, it's labyrinth. And that's why I think we were, I think that's why it's such a text to return to too, is that the way it is, there's just a lot there and it's just very documented, you know, it's like, Oh, wow. There's a lot to, yeah. And I, I'll say, you know, the pull out the interview, if you're looking for, I mean, you should all read the book, but if you want to supplement or you, you want a quicker, quicker access, I do recommend um, Cooper's interview with Dan Denver on the dig. It's, it's unlike this kind of sprawling <laughs> meta conversation, that's a, just a straightforward kind of presentation of, of her work and lays out the argument in its kind of labyrinthine detail. Uh, so, you know, stop listening to us and go, <laughs> go do that and then come back. Yeah. She has like a really nice voice too. I just, a lovely, lovely like voice. just really, yeah. yeah. But maybe um, it'd be worth talking about, um, kind of the stakes and the immediate conversation that she's having and that she's staging overtly in the introduction. She's, she's speaking to certain critical purportedly leftist discourses, right. About the neoliberal period and um, that, that all share certain kinds of assumptions, right. So she takes on who does she take on? Nancy Fraser's account yeah. of the period. She takes on uh, Wolfgang Streak's account of the period. Uh, who else? Uh, major, major figures. Uh, Eva Illouz, Anthony Giddens, Sigmund Bauman, Ulrich Beck. 
Elizabeth Beck Gernsheim. Like she's, I mean, she does a really good job, I think, respecting their arguments and also being clear that she's going to do something else. Yeah. And yeah. I think, would it be fair to say that all of them offer some version and sometimes much more nuanced than others, but some version of a story that neoliberalization, you know, remakes the world in the image of, of, of voracious markets that dissolve all social ties, very much, you know, um, appealing to this kind of um, the metaphorics and the drama of the language of the Communist Manifesto, right? That kind of dissolving language, right? Those images of everything falling apart, everything that solid yeah. melts into thin air. It's just and then wither. It just wither. Withers. It just withers. Yeah, wither, wither, wither. <laughs> and and it eats up the family. That this hyper atomization of you know, not just individuals, but like individual desires. It's just, you know, molecularizing everything and, and the family and, um, and the, right, what's called uh, the, the mid-century um, family, patriarchal family wage, um, right. which was the white male breadwinner, you know, uh, an institution of, 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 of wage work that positioned the white male breadwinner as able to afford, um, to support uh, a, a wife Fordist and children. Affordance. Yeah, Fordist affordance, right. <laughs> um, and, and that even that has been um, destroyed essentially, right? Well, so and there's this sense, you know, there, there's this sense too, where there's the story in the center and left that's like, oh, the family will solve is part of the defense against atomization, right? Because there is this sense where you have the kind of welfare movements, there's a reaction against our fighting to, to roll back the restrictive elements of the history of, of welfare, right? To say, oh, I can be like a single woman with a boyfriend and like get welfare without having like a whole rigmarole where the state's like, I don't know, or, you know, racial issues, right? Like I was talking about, you know, there's these issues that recur, you know, from reconstruction to Clinton and Obama, this reinscription of poor law things about the, the father, right? The tropes of the father and um, you know, I was mentioning there's all these these things she traces the progressive era where you have like the wage for widows, but that becomes more white middle class widows and then they kind of leave welfare and like the proletarianization post social security anyway I'm just like, there's all these threads but this thing about atomization is also a story, you know, there's the, the inflation in the 70s that's actually like hurting creditors, but then you have these like new middle-class homeowners who also then have the California tax revolt, even if inflation's not really hurting them in the same way. And there's just all these stories mixed up about like, what what is the left and what is reaction about in this moment of like this contestation for atomization and the way that is or isn't in a way, in a Fordist family wage and, and who's designing that and who's contending for that or not or complicating that and and why you know mm -hmm. i mean we could maybe step back and just ask like 
how how come the Fordist family wage is the starting pointness of telling stories like at all? Like it's a very particular bizarre thing. And that could just be an Americanist proclivity for short-term thinking, or that we've all watched like too many like post-war movies and Hollywoodness, you know, or something, but it's like it's a very specific kind of um nostalgia that poses as like timeline that makes no sense right and so if you can kind of um we know on the one hand that it's ludicrous because we can point to the contradictions but on the other hand you can play that timeline out in several ways and, and geographically also so she's she does a really nice job of thinking about I'm building on like a scholar named Amy Drew Stanley's work who thinks about the rise of the Freedmen's Bureau like the moment of reconstruction the place where you start to see a transformation from plantation economy, right, that's rendered through race, of course, and slavery into a new mode of marriage contract. It's really pushed by the state and also simultaneously a new legal status of personhood, right? Not for not for women, right? Because now they're under coverture, like whatever they are becomes unfolded underneath a, a kind of patriarchal structure. But you can really see a kind of heavy handed, very ex particular mode of doing social order. And then that way, when she pulls us through to the New Deal or to the post-war period or into the 70s or the 90s, you, she's showing us in each of these moments this tendency for the state to really get involved in the form that family can take. And then simultaneously, this economic logic that at least rhetorically espouses itself to be merely economic, and yet in every moment is really leveraging some ideas about what the proper form of cohabitation ought to be and the proper legal modes of doing intergenerational wealth transfer and social differentiation. And so she just keeps like hammering the point over and over and over again, which gives it that sprawling feeling, but also this really beautiful, like consistent refrain throughout. So just to come back to the, um, the first chapter and her critique of these variety of contemporary, um, very important, very major left articulations and positions, how would we put a finer point on her critique of what they're up to? And, you know, I think she insinuates that where they end up is in this strange bedfellow situation, right? Where they're, they're, they're potentially espousing reactionary or conservative um, values or views. Yeah, at some point, doesn't she say, in fact, that the sort of Marxist position veers really close to this neoconservative line in its insistence on valorizing some organic place of social relations outside of the purchase of the market? Right. So she gives us this kind of almost like a three part voice where it's like you thought it was just neoliberals and leftists. But actually, let me just zoom you into at least two major factions that are in lockstep and triangulating here, which are neoconservatives that sort of have some features that are like uncomfortably similar to like a, a left, a socialist position, you know, and then also are licensing at the same time the expansion of markets not by retracting from the state, but by actively asking the state to step in and make certain kinds of moral forms, you know? Yeah, and she's, not, she's never um, homogenizing about any of these schools, right? So, you know, she has lots of different things to say about Marx and Marx's writing and, and where that sits in the 19th century versus 
various kinds of Marxist accounts today. Um, she seems to, on the one hand, kind of critique Marx himself and his position in the International Working Men's Association, um, which was aligned with the conservative Tories wanting to get women out of the factories. And there were, you know, thousands and thousands, if not dirty. more, of yeah, dirty um, <laughs> of women in factory work, doing factory work, but that wasn't, you know, that didn't right. fit Marx's narrative. But at the same time, she also appeals to Marx's kind of understanding of what she's calling the double movement of, of capital. Um, so she, she doesn't say that, that sounds like your book, Scott. That's, oh my dear, that this is, one of, <laughs> this is, this is one of the places where I, I, I met, I theoretically part ways with, uh, Cooper's project, even if I'm hugely sympathetic to what she's actually doing in recounting this history. And I think to come back to her critique of contemporary Marxists and contemporary, a lot of contemporary leftists is that I think in her own way, you know, I mean, my book was published in 2018. This is 2017. I think we're both articulating a kind of critique of fantasies of dissolution, which are not only false, like that, that dis dissolution is not actually what is happening here, but when you when you um, perpetuate indulge the drama and the hysteria of dissolution, what you're doing is you're actually covering over or or diverting our attention from from what's actually Super going structures. on. Structures, yeah, and what we could you know <laughs> as 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 scholars, as critics, as readers, as social beings, like. Right. We have to make sense of the world. And I think if you're if we're relying on tropes of, of dissolution or, you know, market induced dissolution, we're not we're not actually doing the hard work of wait. No, no. What's actually going on? What is being formed? What is being deformed? What is being, you know, recategorized or what what tensions are actually at play here. And, you know, my work is, you know, I don't do what she does or I haven't. Right. But um, I think that's something that I really, uh, I really <laughs> vibed with <laughs> when I was really studying her work is that she's like, no, 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 let's not do this don't, dissolution. Don't, that's game. not allowed. <laughs> no vibing. Um, she's got these great couple pages where she's just like pulling out quotes from Milton Friedman. And you're, you know, you, you just like, you think, you know, Milton Friedman. And then you're like, no, no, <laughs> Milton. Wow. Right. So she's, she says Milton Friedman for his part assumes the nuclear family as a natural or spontaneous state of the uncorrupted social in much the same way as he posits an equilibrium state of money in its free or equilibrium state. Money appears so neutral as to exert no power at all on the actual workings of economic exchange. Money is merely a veil that permits the proper unfolding of contractual relations. So then I'll just read you one more sentence, but in the same way that the federal reserve may intervene to distort the natural rate of growth of the money supply, giving rise to such perverse consequences as inflation, excessive government spending on welfare upsets the equilibrium state of the family and undermines its natural incentives towards altruism and mutual dependence. Ooh. You know, and it's interesting too, in reading that, I think it's always worth flagging when some parts of Marxism do with the sense of like uh, the universal exchange can have the same uh, roots as the sense that money is a veil. Yeah, I mean, 
you know, they're different. The, the Marxist, the Marxist articulation is right. The value form is first, and that's the social relations of production and exchange. And then money is a kind of mere expression, right? Not a, not a constitutive mediator, but a mere expression of whatever's going on um, with production and, and circulation. Um, whereas the, the neoclassical they, mode is the just make the laws cause there's power. Yeah. Cause the power precedes the, the power relations precede the law in of. the, in the skeleton. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I just think it's, it's just worth pointing oh. out, like, this is organic inheritance. Like she's, she's like pointing us to this bizarro yeah. world where like, that's like, like if you give state money to people, you're going to mess with the organic supply of dependency, which is also economic, and then people won't love each other or something. You know, it's all going to fall apart if you subsidize their. Yeah. 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 Right. The, and that fantasy of dissolution is actually on the side of the neoliberals, uh, right, as well as, mm-hmm. as all, some Marxists. Um, yeah. I mean, there's so many have, things. Have you read Christopher Lash, Scott? I haven't. Oh, really? (laughs) I just feel like that's like a thread that people like pick up in like sometimes these dirtbag spaces too. Like there's mean market ruining our, yeah, like you're saying our our love for each other. In the 70s, you know, this sort of more countercultural new left wasn't everything. Like on the one hand, you also have a deeper um, like diverse and blue collar penetration of this sort of bohemian counterculture thing than people will say. Right. And then on the other hand, you, you do have like parts of even the new left that are, you know, wanting just this welfare for, they don't want the, the, the hard left uh, welfare reform and that, and Cooper traces how that's important to neolib and neocon reaction, even reacting to small portions of the left that weren't even necessarily hegemonic on the left and and still aren't, right? And so there's all these different threads of who has um, different responses. And and, and part of that does come out of a debate about provisioning, right? Like is, you know, there might be some hard feminist left comms now who will say, you know, like, well, trying to do anything at all uh, with the fiscal power is, is Keynesian and it's all going to collapse anyway. Right. And then there'll be the, you know, the Anna Kachayan red scare, uh, Christopher Lash point of view. And then there's, you know, the sense like, well, what, what is housing, you know, what are assets, what is value and wage? And, and I think it's interesting the way, you know, she picks apart that there isn't dissolution after the seventies reaction, right? You have, you go into the eighties and you have, you have Reagan's military welfare state. You have the nineties where you have, you know, Clinton and um, this sort of neoliberal mortgage diversified, still publicly austere market. I don't know. She, she traces that there's just, it's always contested in each little moment and it circles back to things people are contesting now about these where do we live how are we making money for retirement uh who in my network do i need to like boost where they're not getting enough money over here or there and who am i indebted to as like a economic person i'm relating with and uh, how what are the restrictions and you know, Eric, I know you flag a lot of things like remittances and uh, adoption and, you know, 
it's all tied in with Roe v. Wade, right? I mean, it's obvious the way we can say now, oh, well, like supply of babies. Obviously, there's a lot of interesting things people are thinking about with economics and the family and where people are living and work. And I don't know which of these threads you guys want to pick up. Well, one thing to just maybe note, because I think you're, that maybe y'all have something to sort of braid in here is that um, something that you know, it's it's tough to read in trying to tell stories from coalitions is it's really hard to look at all the variety and also navigate the fact that there does seem to be this tendency to ping pong back and forth between like the left and the right, you know, it's this, this and that tendency that can be really both productive to see simultaneously in operation and that also is extremely seductive. And so you get stuck, right? Is it going to be the public or the private or is this private or is this public, you know? And it's, and so part of, I think that the symptomatic hunger that probably draws people to your work as well is to try to find some other frameworks out of that, that acknowledge the complexity of economic life and don't spend their time with like, is this, or is this not like, am I, or am I not being duped? Right. Is this neoliberal or is it not? And right. Is it real? Yeah. Is it is real? It, yeah. yeah. Is what are, are, am I real? What's the theme song? Am I know that I'm here and I'm real and, you know, like <laughs> to, to give some way of not having to answer that question, but to make the posing of the question itself, a useful task for mediations, you know? So like, it doesn't like this week has been really painful, right? There's a lot of mourning going on by, you know, people thinking about this transformation in personhood and the status of, you know, people who bear children. And a lot of that is about the simultaneous imagination of right uh, bodily autonomy. That's, that's a big deal. Um, But the other side of it that's simultaneously happening and they haven't quite stitched together is how the safe harbor being evaluated for reducing abortions is imagined as adoptions, right? And that calls forward a relinquishment politics about families, not as the like trad heteronormative thing that women are forced into, but that there are plenty of situations where people would very much like to maintain kinship relations and they absolutely can't, right? Those birth certificates are sealed. There's a kind of break and cut, and that's also a state administrative function. And so you kind of have to figure out, like, can we take a, a, a stance that allows us to see all of these contradictions operating together and then tell histories of how those contradictions get reconfigured or open up or have heterogeneous forms? So that we can have some breathing room to think about some alternatives, you know, and I think y'all, y'all have been really productive in that sense. So I'll, I'll sort of, I guess, invite you to, to sort of MMT it for us. Well, I guess, you know? I mean, yeah, I, I love all that. And I, I, I would say that in addition to telling these different stories outside of a kind of liberal or Marxist uh, conventional framework with all of its you know, its ways of articulating so-called contradiction. Um, in addition to that, I think it it lends itself to this modality that I think Cooper is, uh, you know, practicing in her own way. It lends itself to different, different vectors of critique is one way of putting it, right? So, you know, I think, you know, Eric and I, you and I have talked about how, you know, one of the, the less strong parts of, uh, uh, Cooper's work because she's a historian, social historian. She's not a media theorist is that there's not a lot of media theory here. Right. But, but I think that there is, 
there is a an implicit strong understanding of law and governance as constitutive mediation and i think we can say that one of the critiques of of her book that you can read across the chapters is is that we get ourselves into trouble when we stop thinking about these nested layers of mediation and when we try to um to pull it apart um, away from these nested layers. And, you know, so just to come back to that Milton Friedman quotation, right? I mean, what's maddening about it, or so many things are maddening, but one of the things that's maddening on from a, from a media critical Inflation perspective- Inflation is degenerate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's disgusting, right? Mediation is degeneracy, right? Um, mediation is queer, mediation is racialized, right? Um, mediation is wrong and it's unnatural. And it's this weird move where it's like, you know, Friedman and, you know, the Chicago school, the Virginia school, you know, like they're all big players and they're variously making these arguments where they're, 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 they're big mediating players, right? They are shaping the conversation and yet doing so while kind of trying to disavow the function of mediation, right? They're, they're, they're devolving our image of causality to the immediacy of an organic family, to the immediacy of market exchange. And of course, what are they doing? They're writing and going and making, te- if it's Friedman, making television shows using goddamn PBS to make, you know, a popular television show, right? Like they're, 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 you know, in the president's office, multiple presidents across parties, and they are like master mediators using the state and using legal instruments and creating new legal instruments, or at least, you know, uh, licensing the creation of new legal instruments to remake the world in these micro, meso, macro ways to make it look and feel like it's all just micro. But they have to kind of acknowledge that it's not micro in order to do that work. And that kind of disgustingly self-exculpating rhetoric of mediation, I think is what, I think we're often on about (laughs) at Money on the Left. It certainly animates my work. I I think it animates Erica's work as well. That becomes, I think, crystal clear in the story that Melinda Cooper is telling in this book. Well, you have you have this moment, right, where then it becomes, you know, Reagan, Reagan 80s, right, where there is state spending, right, but only in in really specific areas, right, like defense, while also then like disavowing uh, these things. And, you know, you have always um, things pushing back, right, like whether we're we've talked a lot about like Darity, because kind of Sandy Darity with reparations uh, thinks about assets in terms of what is um, transmission, what is uh, the 40 acres and a mule, what is what was lost in the great financial crisis for Black families, right? And, and you have, and she traces how in the 90s, like I said, you have this, you know, Darity's talked about this too, how like Black families are more, they have more assets in um, in in housing than, than, than not. Um, and, you know, you have housing gets complicated right in the 90s right like you have the 
the buy this sort of gay marriage and the queer family can buy into assets and you have this private credit that's very unstable but it's diverse and then we have the 80s story and i mean all of this is moving in new ways um and i think mmt can help us see whether it's a liberatory job guarantee or reparations or a green new deal housing plan you know like all of these things that are infrastructural that say yeah like the 80s and 90s uh, this reaction all have this state superstructural social reproduction teeth and and you know you move into this 80s 90s 2000s reaction you know you have this sort of reassertion of assets in terms of financing and class power right, um, private assets yeah i know you have pushback scott to say you know that just the diversified mortgage market wasn't really public social democracy you know, nor nor do we think Reagan's 80s spending is 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 left MMT, you know, but but there's, yeah, there's yeah. legal structures provisioning at every moment. And um, yeah, and that's and, what we want to think about. And Cooper's great on the legal provisioning structures at every moment. There there are there are some moments where she kind of gives into the well, you know, uh, all the all their I, all I see in the 90s is this kind of third way rhetoric of uh, d- the democrati- so-called democratization of credit at, at understood tacitly as private credit. And of course, private credit from an MMT point of view is never as, never as stable uh, and, um, you know, <laughs> collectively empowering as public credit. Um, but that's, that's not part of her discussion. I mean, it's okay. She's trying to map what what was going on, um, you know, with these very particular uh, formations in the '90s, and that's fine. We just there just isn't this this um, when she has sort of more uh, evaluative, critical asides. Um, I think somewhere around like page one fifty two ish. I have it stitched above my bed, and I like, yes, I, 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 I throw out. darts at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One five two, one five two. <laughs> she she does um, make claims that you know suddenly this particular third way third way like rhetoric of social democracy and the dem- de- democrat democratization of credit becomes sort of like the limit of social democracy as such um and from an mmt perspective like no this is a this is a disgusting privatizing degraded um horrible rhetoric of you know democracy it's not democratization right it, at all right at all right let's um, play that can we play it out for a second because please really she's she's asking the key question that that uh befuddles the politics right of social reproduction which is is social democracy achievable through the generalization of inheritance right so you've got milton friedman swearing that people do these amazing altruistic things organically for their family and we all do it for the kids, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, if you have a theory of democratization that is about um, assets, that is always going to sort of re-involve you in this kind of inheritance form that it's unclear, like, would that work? Can you do it, et cetera? 
And so if we bring it like into the present with Roe, right, just to ground both the legacy of what we're living with from the 90s and the way that it continues to implicate us in these economic logics now. So this is from um, Tony Corson's Substack. He's great. If you don't follow him on Twitter, he's also Rag the Poet. He does this like sock puppet poetry reading stuff that just is beautiful. But he's been writing a lot lately about um, how if we accept the idea of a demand for children in the kind of rhetoric of adoption and abortion, then we have to, we're committed to the idea of a supply of children to adopt. So here he's bringing this question of social reproduction back into the 90s as well, syncing up with this question of inheritance and assets and kinship that Cooper's also symptomatically picking up on. So he reminds us that the Democratic Party thought about abortion first and foremost as a question of expanding a certain kind of family, solving the problem of the childless. So Hillary Clinton's using this rhetoric, uh, then Barack Obama, right? It's this, um, so here's Clinton, Hillary saying in 1996, we should make it possible for thousands more children to be adopted by Mother's Day next year, right? By giving tax credits. Obama again saying, we need to work together to reduce the number of women seeking abortions. Let's reduce unintended pregnancies and make adoption more available. So over and over and over again, this supply demand question is being stitched to this inheritance question is being stitched to an idea about how you're going to make families as a legitimate formulation that just keeps carrying right through the 90s and sets the policy for today. Um, and so Cooper keeps drawing us back here. And then I think to your point, Scott, we get stuck. <laughs> like it's not clear that if we are stuck in this logic, there's some way yeah. out of like, so should we not give people assets? Should we not let them have children? Like, we were like what are we going to yeah, do? You know? yeah. We're just called this act, you know? So heavily social yeah. reproduction, like you're saying, this like counting, you know, for everyone to be counted for and accounting includes, you know, people are thinking about that in terms of babies. And then there's just this, this shallow rhetoric that's like, what's the supply and demand? I'm reading charts, you know, like what's the, what's the GDP <laughs> of national babies? I don't know. Like, <laughs> Like, like I can picture like Brunig like in his lab like looking at charts like how are the birth Gross rates going national babies. you know but um, <laughs> what's the exchange rate how's how's forex for babies doing um, but, sorry yeah yeah but their investment view I mean in a sense that's that's both true of like the housing and the babies right yeah Whether human capital yeah like yeah. Um, as long as there's a kind of bizarre denial that economy and society, right, have something to do with each other and that we have to isolate them to evaluate them. And nevertheless, they're so entangled that it sets the question of how to make like policy, how to, it comes like glaring forward in these moments where we talk about inflation and what it means to tame it, you know, in these moments when we're suddenly talking about who's got the capacity to keep, um, like assets moving forward, you know, it's like, it's, it's so entangled that I guess the first order piece of business in my mind is that once you go through, you know, what, what I guess Scott off, you often call going through the rabbit hole, right? Once you kind of accept that those things are, are deeply entangled with one another, well, now we can start having the design question about the proliferation of heterogeneous forms. But if we're consistently fighting about whether or not this is even a real thing that should get attention, then we consistently peripheralize where our analysis could be, you know, where we could be dreaming up possibilities. Right. And so, I mean, you can make, you know, just one tiny 
shift, which would not be utopian in the slightest, <laughs> but one tiny shift in you know the the narrative of the d- supposed you know Clinton era de- de- democratization of credit, and you could say you know what if those were grants and not loans, right? right. right. <laughs> That, that was a policy choice, right? And a deeply ideological one that created unstable conditions that, you know, led in with multiple moving parts led to the, um, the great financial crisis, right? But that wouldn't have happened or played out in the same way. We might've had a bunch of like, sh- sh- you know, not great housing made <laughs> and we might mm-hmm. want to rethink how do we house ourselves and how do we do that sustainably? And how do we do that in communal ways and ways that are, that are transforming gender divisions of labor. And, you know, I mean, there's so many questions that we can ask, but if we're working through this market versus society or, or, or economy versus society model, whether, whether it's the neocon version or the neoliberal version or the Marxist version, all of these questions are foreclosed. That's right. Can we say a, can we say a little bit about like some of the pushback I think you both had about I don't, I don't know what article it was, but uh, I think in her work generally, but this the sense about the media pushback because I think that's included in this imaginative picture. You're both you know media scholars and and I know like Maxejo has written about the 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 liberalization of like of public media right and the the, the the Green New Deal for media and things like that. But um, what is kind of what what needs to be pushed in to this picture that of these productive logics we're seeing with like kind of a media push? What's what's missing there? What do you see is that can be added on to that in in in, in concert with all of this um, rich braiding? Yeah. So I think here's here's one thing that seems like a big glaring entanglement, right? So we keep saying economy, society. In my mind, there's this just so story, right? That we were in one stage of capitalism and then we entered another and then we entered another and we're somewhere around stage this, seven. Where's like point stage eight. seven B? I think I'm zone six. <laughs> yeah. Where it's like it's late yeah. but not late enough, you know? And, <laughs> and like we're like, we're, I don't know if we're like still immaterial or we've dematerialized, but like, you know, it's like, uh, you know, and, and I'm, I'm sympathetic, but it seems so bizarre that if you, kind of like step back and go okay well what what licenses that story it's this broad brushstroke sense that like once we were agrarian and that was a domestic mode of production and then we went into the factories and that was industrial and now computers right like like something happened and yet one of the great un told, I mean, hopefully this is something I, I'm working on and, and really devoted to, one of the great untold stories of becoming network society is how much the home is all over the place. Like we're on our private mobile devices. We have home businesses. Like we are doing this right now, like from each of our respective homes, like the networked world of like whatever we call services and information. If we're in the metaverse, whatever, it's going to be a lot of people who are in this form, this asset thing, this speculative real estate market, this social difference engine, this mediating formulation called the household. So maybe we should start taking that more seriously, not as like the place where the girls were or are being forced back to or what one can't achieve, but as a kind of fundament of political possibility 
And so many things could happen there, but you have to let go of the story that somehow we left it behind way back in the agrarian era or something like it, or even in the post Fordist kind of transition moment as women entered the market, like, no, none of that makes any sense and won't help explain the massive dependencies we have in an informated society on shelter. And so maybe shelter should be rethought as a, as a mediating formulation for society. Yeah. And it doesn't even have to be, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm just, you know, I, saying I what I've learned in my, <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just saying what I've learned from Erica, but you know, it doesn't have to be, uh, it doesn't always have to be, you know, bleeding edge tech either. Right. We've talked about how direct mail is a huge part of the neoconservative movement right and what did that rely on that relied on the postal service right which is a publicly provisioned service List, right list serves yeah list serves. D- doug henwood doug henwood was mad at the post keynesians since the 90s list serves yeah know? yeah it's all so connected yeah, so I think Cooper does have some really great work. Uh, she had an article recently in Descent um, that's fleshing out the kind of Trump era and the sort of petite, I guess like a petite bourgeois small business owner class within the GOP, which is super interesting um, to, to read. But I think one of the critiques that we, we would want to put forward is you can't tell this story anymore without media. It's just too important to, the, you know, you probably never could, right? Yeah. You could, we could probably just keep dialing back and talking about books and letters and, and, and. Telegraph. But yeah, like we, we never had some moment prior to mediation, you know, anywhere. <laughs> Everyone's doing it. Um, but it certainly seems like at this point, constitutively, if you want to have a theory of, of social life, I, I mean, I know we're media professors, but like all roads kind of lead here. You know, it's a really important aspect of of what people are up to. Turns out Twitter's real. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, or horrible. I, I don't know. But it's the not question is beautiful. The it, It's beautiful yeah. to like be able to like look at questions in a new light and realize what you're looking at. And um, I don't know, it's it, it makes you feel less confused and it makes it easier to move right you're not just uh the baby staring at the 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 cliff right (laughs) just like oh i can't i can't move it's like you can you don't know everywhere you're going but when you when you can reimagine the terrain is not this invisible thing you're peering over just like what am i gonna do you can kind of move a little bit and 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 think through where it's the sense of the territorializing where you actually are so that you can you can move, you know, um, and media is, we're in the middle, right? We're, we're moving and we're in the middle of big structures and there's real stakes. And um, it would be a shame to, to just sort of, for the sake of supposed simplicity and clarity to actually like miss everything, you know, just because you kind of are like locked into one way of, of reading it and then obsessed with these wrong categories. And then you kind of miss so many stakes and places to actually move, you know, you're just sort of making invisible what is not invisible. Yeah. And you also seed the ground you seed. uh, I don't like that word ground, but you seed. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Paul Tillich. (laughs) (laughs) You seed the future, right? Uh, to to God knows what, and you know, 
it's funny when we were taking a break before um, Eric and I were talking about how actually th- there's a, uh, a, you know, a tension, a division uh, in the, these two of these key movements that Cooper is narrating, right? Um, it's the, the neoliberals are the ones that are, are anxious about and self-exculpating in their relationship to mediation, but it's the neocons or at least certain threads of the neocons where they don't shy away from this at all. Right. They, they like some of them are, are overtly using the language of mediating structures to remake the public welfare system in, um, in more religious, uh, uh, kind of more and more punishingly austere uh, terms um, along, you know, monetary lines, cultural, ethical lines, gendered lines, racialized lines. Talking about Tucker, Tucker Carlson, you know, he's thinking about what, what were magazines and what is being on TV versus what is being in my barn, which is versus what is me reading Freud and what is, what is what, what is the state versus what is you know what what you know he's got that right wing populist patrician thing and just thinking very very much about family and religion and 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 the media and in, in a horrifying way right but um it's uh and and they I think they too have their own disavowals within that right like the same it's yeah, they yeah, have yeah. the same structured thing where you know Reagan spends and then is like you know. Oh, I hate the government, except, you know, to build a lot of planes or something. Do you know what I mean? And they have the same media disavowal. But I do think it's true that I don't the neolibs. It's interesting. There's a lot of tension on the left about like what is I think we kind of all share too the sense of pushing back on this just like trigger the libs left critique that kind of there is something being sensed about what is lib media strategy and you know, their reading of identity, their reading of the economy in this high liberal sense. And then, I don't know, there's this left pushback that's just like, don't do culture, do economics. I don't even know. But I, I don't know. What do you guys think about what is the neolib? Why do you say it's repressed, Scott? Or what Or what do you think they, because I do think they do put something out, but it's, I don't know. Sorry. I, what do you mean they repress media? Well, I was just speaking specifically about that Friedman quotation and a lot of the mm-hmm. rhetoric that Cooper expressly cites in the book, uh, right? right? Where it's this, it's this like, I don't even think it's a double move. It's like a, a dizzying triple quadruple flip that they do where it's like, well, you know, both the family and the market are not naturally occurring because, it, and so you have to like build it, but but it's organic and it's natural and it's the most natural of everything. Um, but wait, it's not, it made, it's falling apart. It, it, we, we have, we need a strong state to, to support it. And, and, and then the way it will appear to us and the way, the, the way people will experience it, um, you know, when we, imp- when we re-implement the poor law tradition will be that there will be no recourse from the state. The state will be, unanswerable and not responsible for your situation. And, and the law will state clearly that you have to go find the daddy and, you know, under Clinton will, and and Obama will help you find the daddy. 
Um, we're there for you when you want to find the daddy. Um, and then, yeah, go, go find other family members around um, that can take responsibility and support you, right? So the, so the lived phenomenal reality is one of a, a, a kind of immediate, seemingly immediate social cause and effect and like, oh, you know, if the, if the daddy lets me down, it's the daddy's fault, right? It's no one else's fault, right? It's not a macro or meso structure. It's just daddy's fault who we continue, we continuously pathologize. So I guess that's what I was speaking to when I was talking about this, dis this use of mediation and a kind of avowal of mediation that you inevitably need to have to do that, that these kinds of like world shifting, making, making these world shifting moves but it's always in the name of and, and uh, against the back pressure of an anxiety about that uh, mediation and mediation being anything more than something that feels direct, organic, immediate, et cetera. That's a yeah. great answer. That makes total sense. And what were you thinking, Erica? I saw you had a, a thought on your, on your tongue. It's sort of this, like, um, I mean, I, I'm thinking of like the major really philosophical fights, you know, occasionally get into them with, with people. And the liberal question that seems to roar back in those moments when I think about them is, well, that's just not how the real world works. You know, things, some sort of argument will be happening and you will end up at this sort of crossroads with someone, you know, whatever it is that, that says that's just, you're not, you're not being realistic. Right. And that's a kind of shutdown feeling that there is some realism and that that realism seems to have some correspondence to like, um, uh, constricting forms and that are naturally licensed mm -hmm. and they're predicated on a kind of economic organic scarcity and it could not possibly be otherwise right and so I think the key like jump is to note how much work once you see the mediation going into preparing structures to look as if they're immediate and directly perceptible and no other way and I think Cooper does a great job letting you enter. Like you could I Ching this book and like pick a page and start and you could see, right? <laughs> her kind of adorable, wonderful way of texturing all the mediating work of many constituencies, which avow different kinds of politics to make the world such that it seems like it's it must be this way. And yet, because they're within the book's chapters, different historical entry points, that can't be true even in the heart of it, you know, there's seven different varieties. And that's the first tip off in a way that actually you could push the critique farther and look back to all three of these factions and say, like, according to whom, right? That's not the way the real world works, according to what? <laughs> and just ask these very yeah. like naive sounding questions. And then the whole thing starts unraveling just enough to get some purchase on starting to dream and, and uh, point to all the people doing stuff in ways that don't look like that. And so those people must be in reality, right? Like I'm, we must be real. Yeah. Like, and so what is that, right? Either you have to pathologize it away or repress it or acknowledge it and have some descriptive project that starts to put these pieces together and ask questions. So it I is. always understand, right? Like why people want to tell this story, but I, I mean, in my heart of hearts, I'm a social scientist and I don't, I don't want to uh, endorse that story, which seems so evidently able to be um, refuted. Uh, there's, it's I feel beautiful. like we, we just, it's gorgeous. I think we just scratched the surface, but speaking of Oikos, I have a middle schooler to pick up. So, um, I think this is a lovely place to conclude at least this, uh, this conversation about 
Melinda Cooper's uh, wonderful book that I think everybody should be reading right now. Um, so I'm going to say thank you so much for thanks. coming all together. Thanks for coming on, Erica, Scott. Uh, thanks thank for you. doing this conversation. Thank this you. has been really fun for, I think, for everybody, probably uh, elucidating a lot of different um visions we're playing with you know that and that we want other people to play with because we know people are are playing with their own visions as well you know and that's what's fun about um conversation and mediation because you know we're we, we are talking you know and that's political yeah. thank you all so much for working you guys Manic man, 
flusters of mine.